Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlotnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome TJ Kosen. Hi, TJ. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. So TJ has been uh, in real estate since 2006. Uh, one of his first properties was 20 plus doors multifamily asset in Tennessee, He's since done business in Texas, Tennessee, and uh, California, but today he focuses on mostly Dallas-Fort Worth area. So, but before we jump into real estate, uh, would you be so kind as to tell us a little bit about you, your family, and I assume you live somewhere where is it Dallas now, or uh, yeah, I live in Dallas. No, no. So, um, yeah, I started in '06, but my wife and I we got married, moved out to Dallas. Uh, 10 years ago, actually this year, I think, I think it's right about now, nine years ago, right now. Um, and have two kids, which is pretty exciting. That's kind of the whole reason of doing the business thing. It definitely puts stuff in different perspective. Um, we do a pretty high volume of res distressed residential from cheapest thing is a couple thousand bucks to, you know, a million dollar flips. And it just depends a lot on the product and the, uh, like location kind of dictates the exit strategy. Um, born and raised in San Diego. So that was fun. Grew up surfing and doing all that good stuff. Kind of miss it. The beach in Dallas is not the best, uh, not the best surfing beach around. Um, <laughs> and, uh, let's see, graduated college. So I saw all the loan stuff going on in California and kind of 05, 06. Like, you know, I don't know if I really want to try to get into investing in California at what we kind of presumed was more or less the top of the market out there. So decided to go out of state. And the first deal was 112 units in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, only problem with buying stuff in 2006 at the top of that market was, well, it's the top of the market for everyone. So that was an exciting ride until about 2010. Um, I went back to California after that, bought and sold a bunch of houses. And then we moved to Dallas just because we thought it'd be fun to see something different. And that's uh, that's the that's the short story. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, history of uh, your, own your own life adventure. So uh, that. Well, one more fact, then we'll we'll dive into real estate. I uh, uh, you have a uh, fun fact about you. You learn how to walk, I guess, again in 2014. Sounds oh. like you had a medical problem yeah. or emergency. Yeah, that was exciting. I did everything wrong in 2013 to 14, at least like like relationship wise, I guess. So all the stuff that you're not really supposed to do. I got married, moved to a new town, started a new business, or in this case, kind of uh, took the business to Dallas because we we're still. Um, really small at that time. We have a big team now and everything. And then had a kind of life-changing catastrophic accident where I fell and broke my back while rock climbing uh, oh. and was paralyzed for, I think I was I was in the hospital for 10 weeks total. I was, I mean, paralyzed stuff kind of starts coming back online progressively, but you never know exactly where it's going to go. So I had to teach myself how to walk again um, with the help of my wife, uh, who's right over there, and a lot of therapists and doctors and surgeries and all that good stuff. So that was uh, something that's one of those things you don't really wish it on anyone, but it definitely helps kind of formulate your like life experience and kind of mindset going forward. Um, kind of took if the cool part about it is when you have something like that where you literally can't walk and the only objective is to move your legs again or do like one thing like really, really well. And you focus all your time and attention on that. It's pretty impressive what you can do if you uh, if you work on it and you kind of apply that to maybe a business mindset. Um not quite so 
like maybe critically, but if you can apply it to a business mindset, it really, it really translates well in terms of like, well, you can really change the trajectory of your life in a lot of ways inside of maybe eight to 10 weeks. If you're really, really focused on just doing one or two things really, really well. And we've, we've tried to kind of implement that in our, in our businesses. Well, that's a great wisdom. Uh, the key word is focus. If you don't have a choice, you're focused by having no other choice. Absolutely. Uh, it's the default. You have to do it. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's great to hear that you recovered. It sounds like you've regained all your mobility. You've learned how to walk and you have a blessed family. No, now, thank you very much. Uh, l- let's jump into real estate. So Absolutely. let's talk about uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And it sounds like you do a lot of interesting things. So you do volume, uh, mostly residential real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you fix and resell and you fix and resell for cash or you fix and resell for financing. You do both. Just t- tell me a little bit about what's kind of working in this environment today. Yeah, absolutely. All the above. So we do um, mostly we think of ourselves as a marketing company. So we're all almost all just direct to seller for distressed properties. We do a lot of online pay-per-click marketing for Google, that kind of thing. Um, we've tried Facebook marketing before. We're not the best at it, but we do also, we do cold calls. We do mailers. And we're pretty well known in the local like kind of North Texas market. So I would say 20 more or less percent of our deal volume is probably referral based where we'll help someone sell something or we'll buy something from a like a wholesaler partner. Um, and then it really just depends on the property itself. Uh, you mentioned where where a lot of strictly wholesale wholesalers maybe get into trouble is they really get pigeonholed into one product type without knowing how to diversify the exit strategy. And it really limits their profitability. So one thing that sets us apart from a lot of the competition is depending on the property, we'll cater the exit strategy when we contract the property, and at least the perception of the exit strategy, we'll cater at the time of contract to figure out what we're going to do with this property and then maximize an exit strategy on the back end. So for example, if you can buy something you know, wholesale-wise, 75% minus repairs, you know you can wholesale it, but is that the best way to get rid of this property and maximize your profit margin? Maybe if we close on it ourselves and do a little wholesale type model, um, take out the trash, clean it up, and put it on the market as is, maybe that nets us more money with less work. So we're always cognizant of the amount of work, the amount of uh, our projected turnover ratio on the property, and our market exposure for how long we're going to be tied to a property. So um, that doesn't mean we're not going to take on a deal. So our cheapest deals are I don't know, 25, 30K, and maybe some like tertiary markets. Uh, our most expensive flip right now is pre-sold off of a sign at a million bucks. Uh, that was a 12 month turnover with a $400,000 reno. So it's not that we're, it's not that we're afraid to take on any one of those types of projects. It's really that we, once we have the project or the deal, let's figure out what the, makes the most sense for the deal. Um, in terms of exit strategies, we're probably about 25 to 30% wholesale. So that's not bad. It's good because it's, you know, velocity. Um, we're, I would say two years ago, we were probably 75% flips right now. We're actually closer to about 20% flips. Uh, I think we have about 34 or 35 active deals going at any one time. And we have like five or six flips. So uh, we just actually closed on one, I think last week uh, on the, on the dispo side and um, they're good products, but with the amount of time it takes and with the, um, just the way the market's acting right now, they're actually our least profitable. Um, they're actually our least profitable products probably in our portfolio. Uh, our favorite products are seller finance. So we will take a property, close on it. Um, clean it up to a certain to a certain level, not necessarily full like full 
of like retail market pricing, but we'll clean it up. We'll make it nice. We'll fix some of the big issues, the foundation, the HVAC. Maybe we'll paint it. Maybe we won't. It just depends on the property. And then we'll sell it offering terms to a buyer. So we'll basically create a note for the buyer. They bring 10 to 15% down. We create a note and we can either warehouse and portfolio the note ourselves, or we can sell it to a note buyer and recapitalize our fund, uh, our funds that way. So that's, that's kind of, that's a fun, that's probably our favorite exit strategy right now in this marketplace. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, are you getting enough demand to buy these notes? Because you basically don't have, you know, it's, a, it's not a conservative note. It's not like a 65, 70% LTV. You are selling them, you said 10, 15% down. So you have 85 to 90% note. Do you have to discount the note substantially to sell it? I'm just yeah, curious. So, yeah, so it depends on it depends on the property. Um, since we're not doing underlying financing, so we're not doing like a sub two uh, or a wrap or anything like that, we're generally doing it in cash. Um, we're targeting a for the for the properties that work the best. They tend to be in the eighty thousand dollar to one hundred and thirty thousand dollar acquisition price, and the sales price tends to be in the hundred and eh, thirty forty maybe to maybe two twenty five ish on the sales side price. So when we create the note, we always, if we're not holding it ourselves for cash flow, we always have to be cognizant of what makes the note marketable. And if we're doing a full RMLO with a um, owner-occupied qualified buyer putting 10% down, then we're pretty much selling those at par because our face rate on those notes right now in this marketplace is uh, 12 and a quarter to 13 and a quarter percent um, because the people that maybe buy that note, their borrowing went, their borrowing ability went from you know, five and six percent at the lower interest rate environment, and now they're paying the bank, you know, eight and nine percent if they go to recollateralize the note, and they want to keep about a five point buffer between what they're paying and what they're trying to get. So as the interest rates have gone up, we've actually been able to raise the rates on our notes on the um, when we create them too. So those are the ones that are like full RMLO qualified owner occupied. Um, the ones that are maybe I would say a less desirable product. Uh, so they're kind of just chunky houses. Um, and maybe we sell them to an investor. Maybe we sell them to someone who uh, wants to do a construction project on the lot. Maybe it's some guy that has a construction company wants a place to park his truck. So they're not necessarily owner occupied. So we don't have to do the RMLO process. Um, we're still originating the notes about the same like terms. So about 10 to 15% down and uh, about 12 and a quarter to 13 and a quarter. And those notes uh, we'll, take a, we'll take a small discount on. We'll sell them to about 95% of the face value. So we also buy them really well. So we still make money on, uh, we make money on pretty much every piece of it. Uh, unless we sell it, we don't make any money on the cash flow. So that's always a bummer. But but no, they, they do pretty well for us. So that's really interesting. I'm a little bit familiar with this line of business um, where folks have done the seller financing. And I assume it's typically, a lot of it from what I heard, from what I understand is Hispanic community folks that just can't somehow get traditional. They may they may be working, they may be doing business, but they, they just can't get uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. They can't get financing, so they wind up getting self-financed. And uh, I guess the risen interest rates have helped you quite a bit because they, on a seller, on a... Uh, uh, don't you need to under, underwrite for uh, ability to pay Dodd-Frank... Uh, if they're owner occupied, yeah, absolutely, and and that's where the RMLO comes in. So we verify verify income, verify bank statements. Um, if they have tax returns and like a W two, I mean they're golden, so there's nothing wrong with that. We don't really have to we don't really have to underwrite as to credit. Um, I mean we'll run I mean we'll run credit, make sure they don't have like 
weird foreclosures on the on the record or whatever. But yeah, if it's owner occupied, you go through an RMLO, do all the legit paperwork on that side, and just basically basically the RMLO, all they're trying to do is document document uh, a reasonable expectation of the current income and the ability to be able to you know afford the loan. You know, but no one wants to put anyone a loan they can't afford. Uh, maybe some hard money lenders do. Maybe they want to. Maybe they want to foreclose as an acquisition strategy, but that's not a that's not a good business to be in, I don't think. Um, so we definitely want to make sure the borrowers can can pay. And my business partner um, has we've been doing it together two years. He's been doing it uh, like without me, probably fifteen years buying and selling these things. And the default rate on on really both the owner occupied and the non owner occupied ones. And again, we don't like you don't really know what they're going to do once they have it because they're fully amortized over you know fifteen to thirty years depending on uh, the thing. So maybe they move in, maybe they don't. That's not exactly our responsibility to verify it down the road. Although we try to do a pretty good job of it, but they don't really like they don't really default. They're just pretty good solid borrowers. Um, often they get paid off early. They usually get paid off in five to five to eight years. Um, and we have a lot of repeat buyers. We have an internal buyers list that we've generated with. Um, you know, like silly stuff, putting up bandit signs for just a sign that says house for sale with a like, you know, financing or like a down payment amount. And we'll generate this list. We've had buyers that have bought uh, all over the Metroplex. So we'll have a buyer that buys in Fort Worth one day and then they buy in some small secondary town another day because they like the deal. So it's uh, it's really it's really kind of an interesting little niche that we found ourselves in. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. It's uh, I guess it's a unique. Uh, the, 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 that's owner occupied, but for non-owner occupied, you can do whatever whatever you want. I mean, there's no that yeah, frank for the most part. As long as uh, you get enough down payment, you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the other thing is, I guess Texas. This methodology works really well in Texas. That if they don't pay, closure process is relatively easy. It's not right. as difficult as some other places. As I mean, we're not California. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, just curious, transaction volume from last year. Are you seeing transactions soften quite a bit, or you are keeping you know the volume up? Because the interest rates have moved up, so the, certain mm-hmm. things have gotten better, and certain things have gotten worse. And usually, high interest rates they usually hurt demand. Usually, supply has been limited. That's the one uh, sort of saving grace in this environment. Yeah. What. The way I look at it and the what I like to tell people is I think the re- the retail market, I think, hates uncertainty uh, pretty much across the board. Like you see that in the stock market. I think you see it in residential real estate. You see it in a lot of different product classes. And I think what we saw maybe Q3 and Q4 last year, the first time they've regularly raised, raised interest rates in, I don't know, a long time, right? Almost uh, one of the last raised interest rates, 2007-ish. So a long time. And, no, and that causes a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And we saw the market shift drastically. I would say starting end of September last year. And it was really weird for September to about December. And we we kind of saw it coming. We didn't really see the uncertainty coming, but we obviously saw rising interest rates coming. So we tightened up our buying criteria and made sure that we had products that made a lot of sense. Um, we had, I think maybe we had two deals that didn't go the way we wanted them to last fall, which I mean, that kind of sucks. No one likes losing money, but it happens, especially if you're doing the kind of volume that we're doing. Um, really between Christmas and New Year's and into January, we saw the retail market pick up in a big way because not that any, not that we like the term new normal, but I think people got more accustomed to a higher interest rate environment being the new normal in the marketplace. And with the lower inventory and with just inventory, like inventory constraints, um, it really picked up our ability to sell on the back end. So the spring, we had a very good spring. We're having a great summer. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that that are there's a lot of fundamental reasons for why that's happening. Um, 
but for the most part we've we've had we've had good on the lead gen side where distressed sellers are still distressed they still need to sell and we provide uh multiple options for them which is in everyone's best interest really and then with inventory constraints especially in texas um it's not we're not getting you know we're not getting 50 showings with 10 offers 30k over ask oh that was awesome like everyone we loved that for a couple of years that was fun but we knew that was an anomaly we knew that wasn't going to last we're seeing a lot more of a normalized marketplace where as long as we're putting as long as we're putting a competitive product in a competitive market um at a competitive price then we're getting where the market is able to bear that if uh where we're seeing maybe our competition get into trouble and i don't think us i can't think of any deals where we're really in trouble with that but where we can see where we have seen trouble is uh function functional obsolescence becomes a big issue again in the residential market if everything was flying off the shelves two years ago because there was no inventory now if there's something from a from a fixed up perspective if you're trying to hit top of the market and your house has something quirky with it Maybe it's got a galley kitchen instead of an open kitchen. The open kitchen is going to sell for a premium now. Now, does it does it comp the same? Does it is it technically worth the same? Yeah, maybe. Um, but we're going to see desirability is starting to play a lot more of a role in what actually moves off the shelf. So um, days on market are creeping up, but I think that's skewed because of bad deals that tend to sit on the market and now drag the days on market up. Um, whereas our stuff, again, if we're pricing it well, we're getting it. We're still getting it sold within. 10 days to 15 days as opposed to three to five days, but we're definitely pricing it where we need to, to get it to move. That's very interesting to hear. Uh, and just back to the volume question. So are you seeing volume this year better than last year or, or worse well, or similar? We're seeing, we're seeing our, our volume better, but we're always, we're always pushing to get a little bit better, I guess. So we're doing, we're doing a lot more marketing this year than we were last year. We're pretty confident in, the direction of the market and our ability to move stuff uh, in multiple ways. So our volume is picked up. We're probably, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I would say we're probably 30 or 40% more volume this year than we were last year. Uh, in terms of like the overall volume in the marketplace, I'm not sure. I think there's a lot less. There's still, I mean, there's still tire kickers and there's still some of the wholesalers that try to move deals for low margins, but I feel like there's a lot less of that. You have to actually be, uh, yeah, I think you have to actually provide value in the marketplace now. And you have to have like our best deals were we're beating our competition a lot of the times by actually offering less, but we're having long negotiations with sellers. We're actually providing a lot more value to the sellers in terms of giving them different options, be it a lease back, be it um, leaving their stuff in the property, taking over a problem tenants. So those are all stuff. If you're like a binary wholesale company and you have one exit strategy, it becomes a lot harder to compete in. Whereas we're able to, you know, we have the capacity to close. So we're able to actually control the deal from, you know, from contract to dispo, really. And that sets us apart in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the wholesaler guys, no offense to them, but the ones that are just kind of the binary companies, I think they're getting pinched. I think their margins are smaller than they were. Uh, and I think they're a lot of them tend to be competing kind of on the same numbers. And we try to play outside that sandbox as well as we can. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's... Um... The fact that your volume is up just uh, because you're running good business, right? In in general, uh, the volume in most markets have been softened, lack of supply. Absolutely. And ability to negotiate with the sellers, especially distressed sellers, is a skill. It's actually a, a tremendous skill. So the fact that you're able to get those deals with creative ideas, just like you said, uh, you... Um, what's the term for it? Uh, no deal left behind. If you find... 
Uh, if you if you find him in a difficult situation, you don't leave it behind. You find a way to make it work, which is we, we, we try uh, to say creative. We target we target close. What is it? What does it we say? Like a core value: close every closable deal. And we try. Like obviously we miss. Sometimes we get outbid. Sometimes we aren't able to come to a deal. But we try to close every closable deal by again kind of merging an exit strategy with uh, with the seller and with the property on the front end, and just honestly almost just lay all the cards out on the table. Now, if there's something that totally doesn't work for that seller, we don't present that as an option because what's the point? It doesn't work. But if it's a case of, you know, that one of these two options might be good for them, then we'll say, hey, these are the two options. You know, how do you want to pursue this? And th that helps that helps empower the seller, but also it kind of helps us stay in the driver's seat in terms of the, the transactional complexity of the deals. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> if it's closable, uh, make it happen. Uh, back to just the pricing. I'm just curious. Uh, are you seeing? I mean, now it's it's a seasonally good mark. Well, I guess most people try to move before uh, before the school year. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are the price is the the house pricing stable? Moving up, moving down. I'm just curious. What are you seeing right now? I think it's a lot more submarket specific. I think we saw about a 10% cooling last fall and into the winter time from the absolute peaks. And what we were telling people, even in our like, I don't know, in our meetups and our private masterminds and stuff, is the the comps for like June, July last year, 2022, that hit the top of the market. The you know the deals that sold right up there at the top. I don't, we don't really consider those hardly valid comps uh, when we were pricing stuff into the fall and into the spring. Um, it doesn't mean that the sales weren't valid. It doesn't mean that they didn't appraise or any of that stuff. But they were really, it's like, it's like if you're watching the stock market, I guess, and you see a, just a, a real high ramp up in pricing on a stock that just goes like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to crash, but it means that it can kind of settle and soften and like fall back down a little bit. And I think we saw a lot of that kind of settling and consolidation in the price action um, last fall and even into kind of Q1 this year. Uh, we've seen a, in, in Dallas, at least in North Texas, we've seen a, I think we've seen a small appreciation in pricing. I don't think we've gotten probably in all the areas, we haven't gotten all the way back up to where we were maybe last June, July, um, with that kind of blow-off move that we saw. But we're definitely seeing a kind of a trickling up uh, in that area. But that being said, with the caveat of it's got to be there, there is more competition in the marketplace now um, on the on the retail side. So, yeah, the inventory is low, but the bad inventory doesn't move, and the good inventory does move, and that's going to skew the data points. So the good inventory is going to sell better. It's going to sell a little bit higher. Uh, it's definitely going to sell faster than the stuff that isn't fixed up for correctly for the price point. So that, that doesn't mean that we flip everything. Again, I think I started by saying we're only about 20% flips and they're my least favorite product. But we're we're tending to repair to a price point and to a buyer avatar that we think we can hit to to have a like a profitable outcome on the transaction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how are you building wealth? Besides, so transactional buy sell buy sell buy sell that <laughs> yeah. generates it generates revenue, it, but it doesn't build wealth. Uh, it's, so, it's good for it's good for paying the bills, but somehow the bills always keep seem to it kind of keeps up with each other. Yeah. Don't they? <laughs> so how do you how do you see building wealth? I mean, what are you doing? Obviously, if you sell some of these notes and you're holding it, that's uh, it's income stream. It's not necessarily wealth building because somebody else owns the property, but you got an income stream for years. Yeah, we have a handful. We have a handful of rentals. Uh, rentals have uh, like in the residential space. I know you're you know, obviously big in the commercial space. Um, in the residential space, they have logistical problems with scaling up to like a lot of units, just because of you know the financing ability, the uh, 
uh, economies of scale. When we were doing apartments, it was almost easier to renovate, you know, 20 apartments at a time than it is to renovate, you know, five houses that are half an hour away. So it's it's a it's a it's a slower grind in terms of that side. Um, but no, we have a handful of rentals that do pretty well for us. We've that we've just been collecting over the years. We're actually in the beginning stages of building a debt fund for lending on the notes. So that doesn't capture the appreciation, but it's going to capture more of the cash flow for us. Because since we, you know, since we tend to run out of money, if we're going to do a high volume of deals, um, we generally do have to sell the notes to recapitalize. I mean, we have some that we keep, but but we sell a lot of them to recapitalize. So the point of that fund is to uh, is to generate more of that cash flow, and then we'll see we'll see where doors open. I don't know. I'm still relatively young. I'm only 42, so we'll see where the doors open. We might we might get into if that fund goes well, we might get into a fund for for apartments or something commercial again. I kind of miss that space. And we've done a couple we've done a couple one off deals here and there, but we've been so focused on building the transactional business for generating just you know big paydays that we haven't really had the time or flexibility to to focus on another aspect of the business that we have been neglecting. Uh, I, I certainly uh, like the idea of funds, right? <laughs> Running, <laughs> having run many funds, I, I think funds is a great way to uh, get your investors good yield, especially these uh, income-focused funds. And and in this environment, it's kind of funny. But people ask the question: so, what's what are the drawbacks and and the the, the pros and cons of a higher interest rate environment? And the, the most obvious benefit you can get a higher yield than just you know a little while ago. Yeah. If you uh, if you put in a good note into the into the into the or multiple notes into the fund, mm -hmm. so uh, a debt fund that finances these things, as long as you're not taking too much risk. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, if these notes perform, you can do pretty well for your investors. So that, that's a, that's a certainly I've seen these funds. I've certainly have um, you know I, I have a uh, close friend who ran a fund that did this type of stuff. Literally, the product you mentioned. Nice. Telefinance notes, notes, and uh, th that product. And I uh, started the whole conversation. It's almost counterintuitive, but that product is pretty sticky. Uh, if folks who folks who get they want to buy these houses, but somehow they don't have the ability to go into traditional bank product. And um, interestingly enough, in Dallas Fort Worth area, there's a lot of uh, demand for that for that product. So that it's, that product is a is a very interesting product. We, we we like it a lot. Yeah. Um. There's a lot of, I mean, that particular buyer demographic. A lot, a lot of them probably could qualify for bank financing, but maybe there are contractors that don't want to, uh, go through the process and the headaches and all that good stuff. Obviously, some of them are just ITIN borrowers. Um. And sometimes sometimes our product isn't the most desirable property, but then we're not going to sell it for full ARV. So if you're a contractor and you're able to do a bunch of work on the house. Um, well, but it's got like a big yard. We like, those are the great deals it is like a, like a crappy two bedroom, one bath house, but on a half acre lot in a really desirable area. And they want to park their extra work trucks out there or have a shop in the backyard. Um, those guys just don't default because we're not selling the property at, you know, if it's a 200 K property, we're selling that property like 150 because it's not, it's not fixed up, but they love it because they're buying, they're buying the dirt and the house is almost a bonus for some of these folks. So it's it's a it's a lot of fun, and um, yeah, the borrowers. I mean, I guess people can get into trouble, definitely if they're not collecting down payments. Uh, but we we vet that, we get that on all the deals, and we try to qualify the borrower. I've heard of funds getting into trouble where they're collecting small down payments and charging low interest rates, and we just we try not to do that because it's not as you know it's not sustainable in our end. Well, you can't. I mean, in this environment, you have to push the rate up. What what, what few years ago. Uh... 
kind of nine, ten percent. Now you can easily go twelve, thirteen. So it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of beginning to run out of time, but any final thoughts? Um, do you see anything interesting kind of developing? Because uh, the whole the whole economy and and Dallas Fort Worth is a, is a is a world of its own. Mm. So the, the the economy is supposed to be slowing down, but a lot of people moving into Dallas Fort Worth from California, from New York, from other areas. So it, its economy is pretty pretty strong. So do you see it continuing even? With this, you know, strange environment where the interest rates are still going up, uh, full employment, kind of a strange world. Yeah, I would expect something uh, over recession, but it's it's kind of a bizarre. Uh, some people are doing well, and some people are struggling. It's it's it's, it's, it's a bifurcation. It's not a generally everybody's doing well, everybody's doing poorly. Yeah, we're we're definitely seeing it be a lot more a lot more market submarket neighborhood specific in terms of what moves and what doesn't move, and what we're able to do. Um, I, I think we have to see a cooling in the market to a certain extent, but I mean, everyone follows the, the demographics of Texas, people wanting to move here for jobs and for opportunity and all that good stuff. Affordability, being from California, we're always very affordability conscious. So I think lack of affordability is always a leading indicator of uh, trouble in a real estate market. And then it's really a combination of ability of the market to absorb excess inventory versus affordability versus just kind of economy in general, what's going on. Um, I think we're in a weird spot right now, definitely, because I think a lot of folks that otherwise would be home sellers are not going to want to move. For example, if you bought a house and it's, you know, you paid 20 grand for it um, and now it's worth 350, but maybe you want to buy a $600,000 house, um, but you're going to be moving into a $600,000 house at, you know, seven and a quarter percent and your 200K house is a 3%. That's gonna. That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell. So I think we're gonna continue to see a, an almost artificial lack of inventory in the residential space. Um, that's going to be. It, I mean, it has to be supportive because it's gonna take supply out of the marketplace. The question is how much that's gonna contribute to supporting continued higher prices. The answer is I. I really don't know. Um, we try to. That's, we try to. We try to limit our market exposure on the residential side when we're doing speculative stuff. If we have you know five or six different exit strategies. We're not too worried about it because then we bought the house really well. It's not going to be a problem. If we're taking on a big, like a big rental project that we know we're going to be in for, you know, nine to 12 to 13 months, um, we're we're going to make sure we buy it deep enough where we have some insulation if there's a softening in the marketplace, or it's just, we know it's going to be a desirable product regardless. So that's, that's how we're hedging our risk. Um, I think we have to have a little bit of a cooling. I think the interest rate environment is, well, I th- as much as if people don't like Dodd Frank, I think it, it kind of fixed a lot of things with the residential side. Um, I think we're it's going to be interesting to see what we what happens with with commercial properties. I think as some of the less sophisticated kind of uh, commercial investors didn't lock in their rates or have it a you know a a bridge loan that's about to adjust, we'll see what happens with that. I think it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know what do you think. Yeah, it's a it's a great observation. Residential feels like it. Especially markets like Dallas or Wharf, um, it doesn't feel like it, it can go through correction because you have no supply. For, for the reasons is exactly what you mentioned, people just don't want to move. They locked in low interest rate mortgage. On a commercial front, it's happening. I mean, we, you know what's going on. The the rates are just um, uh, they they cycled up so fast. Yeah, that a lot of operators are gonna you know they already stuck with their pants down. They they're mm. paying so much more for debt that they they didn't expect. And as far as where we go from here, it depends. And, you know, in some ways, 
this is by design. It's a little bit of a, it creates opportunities. I mean, sellers that can service the debt are motivated. And um, in residential, you don't see you don't see the same problem. The distress comes from a different point of view, especially in the stuff that you where you operate. And commercial debt service is probably one of the biggest um, drivers of of pressure. So uh, we we are opportunistic. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, fresh money is, is looking for for great deals. We, we just commercial volume is down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Residential sounds like at least your experience is not. Uh, you know, a reduction in volume. You, your experience is a positive experience, but number of other operators, I know that they are struggling with the volume. Uh, so I ask you, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for you from the point of view that your experience is positive. Not everyone is like this, but it, that means you are a great operator in a great market, and you're focused. You're staying, like you said, you're staying in sort of uh, one area where you 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 know exactly uh, what to do and how to do. Final thoughts, any um, any good book, any good um, uh, best advice, any, any final parting thoughts? And and the uh, also how would folks get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out? Uh, is there a website? Uh, whatever you want to share. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what am I reading right now? Um, I decided that I want to read the Bible. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, I had a I have a minor in theology from way back in the day, and I haven't read a whole lot of it since then. I thought, you know, not a lot of people read the thing from front to back, so I will see how far I get. Uh, it's definitely an undertaking. Um, business books, uh, they all say the same thing, don't they? I mean, Rich Dad Poor Dad is awesome, and some of the operational books <laughs> are awesome. But once, no offense to him, once you kind of read one, you kind of read them all. I think. Uh, so, now in terms of business advice, the kind of the back accident. Um, being able to focus on something really intently uh, and spending a limited amount of time where that's the only objective is to do the one thing um, has really done wonders for our company. And we, we try to block up the company into kind of quarters where we focus on increasing lead flow and conversions. And then we kind of focus on breaking the systems that got us there to try to push it to the next envelope. And we, we really try to do that kind of quarterly and that's done, done well for our business. Um, I'm super easy to find. I'm all over Facebook, Instagram, uh, um, yeah, website too. TJ Cozen on Facebook and Instagram, and then I got a website tjcozen.com. It's got personal information. It's got projects that we're working on. Um, again, we're starting up the fund, so we'll probably start marketing that eventually. But um, that's gonna be that's gonna be a couple of months. We're doing the paperwork in the beginning stages right now. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, good luck with the fund. Uh, it's certainly a, a new adventure, but uh, it sounds like you got your uh, act together, at least in the markets, and uh, you're, you're doing well from that uh, from that perspective. And uh, back to the book, it's hard to recommend uh, a better book, right? I mean, most people, uh, if you if you send them to listen to the word of God, it, it's always a good place to go. So uh, you can't go wrong there. And all these yeah. great business books, they're wonderful too, but um, some of them are similar to others. It's almost amazing reading, you know, bo- business book after business book. At some point, you realize, well, I've listened to this only 20 other times from 20 different books. So there is a little bit of redundancy. It's kind of like uh, people either do research or they plagiarize, one of the two. Research is when you <laughs> plagiarize from many sources. True, true. <laughs> so, and it doesn't mean they're not good. Like you- you take you take one same as you network or go to events or whatever. You take one or two things that you can really implement and actually do, 
Uh, and that's what you're there for, for the entirety of it. So there's, yeah, there's plenty of good operational books. I, you have a, I need to read your book, right? Because I just heard about it on Tim Mai's podcast. So I need to hear, I need to read your book, I think. Well, I have an older book. I'm working on a new one, which it'll, it'll come out. Uh, stay, stay tuned, stay patient. Uh, yeah, reach out and I'll certainly get you, happy to get you a copy working on it. it. It's a process. Getting a book done. I have material probably for two books, but if you make the book too long, it, it works really well for shelfware or a brick right <laughs> so you got to make it sort of at least maybe break it one brick into two bricks nice nice thank you dj appreciate you coming on a podcast uh and uh wishing you uh all the success with your new fund and and your business in uh, dallas port wharf area well thank you so much mike i appreciate it thank you kindly Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.